1: On this episode of Newt's World, I am really excited because I have read every single one of his novels. I've read his film reviews for the Washington Post for years. He is a remarkable author of over 20 novels, including, I think, the best books ever written about sniping. He is the retired chief film critic for the Washington Post, where he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. He has also published two collections of film criticism and a nonfiction work, American Gunfight. His latest book, Basil's War, a World War II spy thriller, is available now. And he has another book, Targeted, coming this January, 2022. I have for years been looking forward to a chance to talk to Stephen Hunter because he is so clever, has so many insights, and knows so much that is just remarkable. So, Stephen, thank you for joining me on News World.
3: Dude, I'm very glad to be here. I can't tell you what a, a privilege this is for me. And, Speaker of the House, or just another fan, it's always great to hear nice things about the effort I've put into the way I've spent my life.
1: Well, that's what I'm really curious about. I mean, you were born in Kansas City, Missouri. By the way, my dad was a career infantryman in the Army, and I spent three years at Fort Riley as a child. You grew up in the Chicago area. Your dad was a professor. Your mother wrote children's books. You graduated (laughs) in the upper three-quarters of your class from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, which is a great, great university, in 1968. And then you spent two years in the U.S. Army. You joined the Baltimore Sun in 1971, which is a great historic newspaper that produced Frank Kent and, and produced a number of remarkable critics. You then worked there for 26 years as a copy reader, book review editor, feature writer, uh, and beginning in 1981 as the paper's first full time critic. You know, you clearly paid your dues learning the business. Let me just start with that. I mean, you must have really enjoyed the process of working in a newspaper.
3: Yeah, I did. There's such a thing as a newsroom personality. There are people who are just destined by virtue of the way they think and the way they talk and the way they interact to go into a newsroom. And I was one of those people, and God only knows what would happen to be if I would followed my father-in-law's advice and become an insurance salesman. But I got in the newsroom And I was an utter mediocrity before I got there. I was an utter mediocrity for a long time there, but I gradually found my place, my voice, and I suppose my career. I was at the Sun for 26 years. I was at the Post for 11 years, 38 years total. It was great experience and I'm so happy for it because it it let all the other good things that came after it, come after it.
1: Well, of course, you were a finalist, both in 95 and in 96, with the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism while you were at the Sun. That had to be a pretty heady experience. Yeah, it was
3: great, but it was also disappointing. The legend in journalism is that you'll never win that prize unless you've been a finalist. So you become a finalist, you don't win, but you have a real shot the next year. Unfortunately, and this is true of everything as you know, from your career to my career, politics, politics, politics. You know, the Pulitzer Prizes aren't a pristine, holy, journalistic enterprise of purity and idealism. It's a lot of grubby backslapping slapping and horse trading, and you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, etc., etc. And I lost out the second time, and that was extremely disappointing. And for a while, then I think it was seven more years before I finally won. And when I won, I was not expecting it. I didn't know I was a finalist. So it's an extraordinary moment in my life. They tell me that when they told me, I jumped three feet off the floor, which is funny because I've never been able to jump more than two feet off the floor in my life.
1: <laughs> you know, I would think that would be an occasion for a little partying.
3: There was a lot of partying and I'm happy to say that Sally Quinn finally spoke to me when I won the Pulitzer Prize. She'd sat three desks away from me for two years and her eyes just went blank. It was like a glitch in the radar when she passed over me. But I won the Pulitzer Prize and for at least one night she was nice to me.
1: (laughs) That's wild. So I'm curious, When you were at the Sun, particularly in the early days, was there anything left of the spirit of H.L. Mencken or had that long since gone away?
3: The answer is yes, me. The Sun, when I joined, it was in sad shape. It had fallen way down. It was an odd thing. It was like a threadbare aristocrat. It remembered the old days and still thought it was of the old days, but the world had passed it by, The whole approach of journalism had changed and the sun didn't get it. And I benefited enormously from a palace revolution that took place in 1980, where a lot of people put their jobs on the line and said, look, this newspaper has to change. We have to get with it. And as a consequence of that, it's like Prague Spring. A lot of possibilities were opened and many people who the paper hadn't considered valuable were able to get important jobs. And I was one of them. And I can't quite say the rest is history. I can only say the rest is, you know, small J journalism history in Baltimore, Maryland. But one of the things I'm proudest of is I was part of a movement that I believe made the sun better and helped it retain. A certain level of the greatness that Menken had brought to it in the twenties, it was one of the great newspapers in the twenties and thirties and the forties and it yeah. you know nothing lasts forever, and the sun didn't last forever. but I think we gave it a last hurrah.
1: That's fascinating because I learned journalism under a guy named Paul Walker who had been a columnist in Harrisburg and then had set up a weekly giveaway paper. And- all that stuff. And starting at about 11 years of age, he took me under his wing. And he was a huge fan of Frank Kent, who was the other half of the great political team with Menken. And Mencken, of course, was remarkably cynical and clever. And Kent was just an old-fashioned street reporter who wanted to actually figure out what was going on in politics. And a lot of my early political education came to care of the Baltimore Sun. So I had a deep affection, but I had always thought they frankly just ran out of money. But I gather from you that, in fact, part of this was just a cultural problem, that they got stuck into a certain cultural sense of themselves and couldn't break loose. That's absolutely
3: true because I'm a sports fan. I always make athletic analogies, and they talk about certain teams get a culture of losing. They get used to losing. They're okay with losing. They're okay with who they are. And those are teams that desperately need to be shaken up. And what happened to the sun was even the board understood that it needed to be shaken up. That is the board of trustees. And what they did was they, and this is a name you'll know from history, Reds Murphy from Atlanta. They brought him and sure. you may know him personally. And he remade the sun in a couple of years and brought in new people and then A few years after that, they brought in John Carroll from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and John was a magnificent journalist, and he was the one who really, I mean, Reg opened the door, and John kicked it wide open, and that is why I think the son of the mid-80s through the the turn of the century became a great paper again. Of course, everything changed in journalism when the internet came along. And the great river of money that poured into newspapers from classified ads suddenly dried up and they had to shrink themselves drastically just to keep their nose afloat. And they sacrificed writing. They sacrificed deep reporting. They sacrificed so much just to stay afloat. And I mean, we could carry this through to the day. One of the things that happened was like a, all team loaded with superstars who made too much and didn't contribute enough. They had to fire a lot of senior people, not fire, but retire a lot of senior people. And what ended up with was a paper that was run by people who were not experienced enough or old enough to run them and to make those decisions. And that has a large part to do with what's going on. I'm sorry to say, in newspapers now. That is why I think they turned so left. That is why I think they lost the power of the commitment to objectivity. That is why a New York Times reporter can say, I'm biased and I'm okay with that. If you said that before the year 2005, you would have either been sent to cover sewer politics in Newark, New Jersey, or fired on the spot. And now it's just part of the game. I did watch the business change radically over my 40 years in journalism.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned Reg Murphy was a friend of mine and he was one of my mentors. I was a college student at Emory and he was the political reporter for the Atlanta constitution. And he was very generous in sitting around and telling stories and teaching me. And he's just a great, remarkable person who I admired. You're at the sun, you're doing your job, and you decide to write novels. How did that happen? Well, I'd actually written novels before
3: I became the film critic. I have a little tiny gift for storytelling, for narrative fiction. And I was able to persuade a New York publisher to publish a book of mine. My first book was published in 1980. It was called The Master Sniper. I make this sound so straightforward, like it was a straight line. It was, in fact, a line with many failures and many follies and many wrong decisions. But by the time the film critic's job came open, I had published two novels. And one of my motivations for writing the novels was that I knew it would help me on the newspaper. Because no one else was doing it. And this is a note to young journalists who may be listening. You want to validate yourself outside the newspaper. That will please people inside the paper. And I was able to validate myself by publishing two books with a big fancy Mandarin New York publishing house. It's three years before I'd been a nobody, but suddenly I was somebody. And that made me a viable candidate when this job came open. Now I'm leaving a lot of nitpicky politics out of it, But that's generally the shape that my career took. And I could not have become a film critic had I not been a novelist. However, the real question in my career was because a film critic is a writing-intensive job. You're writing a lot every week. Sometimes you're writing three or four pieces a day. And the question is, will you have enough when you get home that night to do more work? And I was amazed to find out that I was able to do that. And what was astonishing about that was I am, and I say this in all honesty, congenitally lazy. I am a lazy person. But once I got the rhythm going, once I got used to the good things that it brought me, somehow that made up for my laziness and I was able to get my you-know-what in the chair in front of, First a typewriter, then an electric typewriter, then a primitive computer, and finally on to a more sophisticated computer. Although my computer is still stuck in the year 1985, so I did forget about the technology at a certain point. But the two seem to feed off each other in the sense that the newspaper work gave me a taste for fast and dirty. You write the piece, you make it as good as you can, your editors help you make it a little bit better, it goes in the paper, people say nice things about it or they ignore you, whichever. And then, and this is what's cool about journalism, you start fresh the next day. You're always reinventing every single day. And that's cool. People love that, people get addicted to that in journalism. The novels, on the other hand, give you a chance to try and get it right over the long haul over time and it may take three or four drafts it may take four or five years you may never get there but you have a goal you have to pursue in tiny increments every day and you have to take pleasure in the journey rather than concentrating on the reward and i found I don't know why I could. It surprised me as well as everyone who knew me. But I found I somehow I had that discipline, and so I was able
1: to do both for a number of years. So when you start, you pick as your topic the master sniper, which in a sense foreshadows what will be about, I think, probably half your books.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Why
1: did you pick that topic? It wasn't so much that I picked it, it picked me.
3: I had written two novels that I had been unable to publish. So, again, the overnight success was, the night was seven years long. And I was sitting in the newsroom looking at books. One of my jobs was the book review editor. I looked at the Rand McNally Atlas of World War II, and I was just paging through it. And suddenly I came upon an entry for Vampire, which was the German Infrared Night vision sniper system. I had no idea they'd ever invented it. I thought I knew about guns and a lot about World War II. Turned out I knew nothing about either. But in the second I saw that instrument, I saw a novel. And I went home that night and I wrote an outline. I wish to hell I still had it, but that outline was the foundation of the next 40 years. And I learned what not to do from the unpublishable novels but I knew what I had to do, and that book, it seemed hard at the time, but in honest truth, it was relatively easy to publish. The first editor that saw it bought it in one night, so it was just, I learned enough to be able to write a publishable novel.
1: I'm intrigued because you're sort of describing two parallel streams. One is, you're getting better and better as a writer, and some of that's just the day-to-day, practical, mundane stuff you've been doing for years. But the other is you're beginning to cultivate in your brain an ability to imagine something which grows into a story, which is intriguing enough that it keeps the reader reading and begins to build an audience for you of people who want your next book. And those two streams have to come together To truly be a successful novelist, and you pull it off. As I said earlier, I look forward to every single one of your books. I'm curious if you got into sniping because of a World War II reference to a German night sight, how did you go on then to become clearly the finest writer in the world on the process of sniping and the psychology of sniping? And in some of your books, a level of technology that is just remarkable. This all got inside you, and you became really good at it.
3: Well, thank you very much. The only thing I can say is that somehow when you write, this is something Kurt Vonnegut, he said, when I write, I simply become what I seemingly must become. And it's not so much about writing or thinking up plots or doing research. It's about becoming and the book becomes your life and you have really no other life this is something my wife will never understand you have no other life and the book is always either in your mind or in your subconscious and i don't see that as a skill i see it as maybe it's a form of autism or something but it's just something that happens what you really have to train yourself to do is to achieve level of concentration quickly get there stay there for enough time to do your work and then get out and i think it's more about that than it is about anything yeah sure there are lots of technical things like i know what questions to ask because i have such back knowledge i know who to talk to i can always use the credential of the paper to get close to people that I couldn't get to otherwise. You just do what you have to do to do the book. I'm so flattered by your sense of awe at it. But to me, it doesn't seem that awesome. It's just my life. It's just what I do. And like anyone else, I have follies and failures and mistakes and words that I regret that I did say or I didn't say. And it's just a normal life. And the writing, I mean, it's helped me to make it a part of my normal life. It's like brushing your teeth. You wouldn't think of going out in the morning without brushing your teeth. You know, it's habit. It's not will. I wouldn't think of going out, going to bed without writing. It's just sort of a part of the fabric and what you do in your life. Now,
1: you've written some fiction, so you would know of this. This could not all be news to you. Well, no, but that's part of why I'm so impressed with your ability, because I have written some fiction, and I've worked with some great writers. There's an ability on your part to always surprise me. So I go down one road with you, and I sort of get the rhythm of what you're all about. And then you pivot. A good example is your book, Dirty White Boys, which suddenly just wrenches the reader and puts them in a different environment with different kinds of people who are appropriately despicable and violent and moving towards a crisis, and at the same time you're creating a crisis for the policemen who are trying to deal with them. First of all, your writing has many complexities, and that's part of what kept me intrigued is that I'd be following all these different parallel threads that you had come up with, but You know, you then begin to get me into the whole story of the Swagger family and the history of the Swagger family. And several of them, I think Hot Springs, for example, is practically a work of genius because it so captures that town at that particular moment in time. And you weave together the family back into the technology, back into the reality of life in Arkansas in that era. You know, that's quite an artistic ability.
3: Well, the interesting thing, at least to me, is that all that was a surprise, and a very pleasant one for me. If you had told me I would essentially be writing family saga, if you would said it to me 30 years ago, I would have said, gee, guess what? I'm not interested in families or sagas. But each book I wrote raised questions, and the only way to answer those questions was to write another book. And suddenly I looked back and I had knit together this tapestry of an alpha family of gunfighters over three generations. It was not a thing I planned. It was not a thing I aimed for. And about the halfway point, I saw what I was doing. And to be honest, I was kind of impressed. And I decided, you know, I'm going to push this thing out. I do use this a moment to tout My next book, which is called Targeted, and besides some political aspects to it, it finally gave me a chance to explain the Swagger family. Where does their genius, where does their courage, where does their talent, where does it come from? And it comes from a very specific source, and that source, as well as the source of the name, the origin of the name Swagger, that will be explained in Targeted. And I'm just so pleased that I finally got that into print. It was not easy, you know, in that town there, sort of frosty than anything that's a little unusual, but somehow I managed to get in. And I think the Swagger people, the people who really respond to the Swagger family, will really find it interesting and enlightening as to the origin of the swaggers. And I will tell you that getting that in was controversial. I had to change publishers. There were lots of people that didn't like it, that didn't get it. People who weren't familiar, who only had read piecemeal and didn't understand that it was a continual saga and they had no commitment to the overall picture, didn't get it. But I somehow, I bumbled and staggered my way to a minor triumph in getting it published. So I hope you'll look forward to that.
1: Oh, I do, I do. I'm looking forward to January now, and I don't usually spend my time looking forward. (laughs) Yeah, Uh. it's one good thing about January, I hope.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip.
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
1: Let me split in two different directions for a minute. First of all, you write authoritatively on the technology, psychology, and practice of sniping. Now, you start out, as you described it, essentially by random luck. And you suddenly have the right insight. But if you take the totality of the books that involve sniping, how did you become so expert? It's funny. I will surprise
3: you by saying this. It was not by talking to snipers. And one of the reasons I don't want to talk to snipers is because if they tell me something and I use a version of it, but it's not exactly what they said, I have to fix it to make it better for the book. I don't want them being upset or offended or feeling used. So I stay away from that part of the force. I finally have a friend who's a sniper and that's a guy you must know, Jack Carr, the great back seal sniper who has now become an extremely successful thriller writer. But before Jack, I didn't, was not on, quote, on any personal relationships with snipers. A lot of it is secondary experience, but mainly it is what I would have to say, the stimulation to the imagination of the gun. I mean, when I was five years old, I was fascinated by firearms, and it is a passion that has not abated in the last 70 years. In fact, after we break this up, I'm going to pick up a new revolver. I bought a new Colt Python, and I'm gonna go pick that up and shoot it for the first time today. In other words, now, 70 years later, it hasn't burned out, it hasn't dimmed, and I find that some aspect of firearms will always stimulate me, in a certain way, and that's what gets my EKG, my electric impulses, jiggling. And basically, what I'm selling is my electrical impulse, because that's my imagination working. And I just apply myself, I lose myself. I try and put it against a matrix of semi-realism. You know, I am aware of something. I know that Bob gets shot at an awful lot and missed way too much. And if I went into combat and I was shot at, I probably got hit on the second or the third bullet. But the bullets magically seemed to miss him as they magically missed Audie Murphy. And I think it's okay, you know, because there are men who are unusually gifted with the gun and unusually heroic, and they figured in all our wars and their existence is a matter of fact. It's not a fantasy of Hollywood. In fact, it's what inspired the fantasies of Hollywood. So I try and get to those guys, create a portrait of those guys without the intervening lens of Hollywood. That stimulates my imagination. And one of the things I also wanted to do was, I wanted to show these guys is having lives. You know, they weren't just alpha heroes on comic book covers and leading commando raids and unrealistic movies. I wanted to show they were connected to society. They had wives, they had children, they had family histories. They were in, but not in society. They were suspicious of society. One of the overall arc of the whole swagger oeuvre is to watch, well, I think of it in these terms. It's one myth underlying the whole thing, and that is the return of the exiled prince or the exiled warrior. In other words, here's a guy, it's sort of like Gladiator, but I thought of it before Ridley Scott. Here's a guy who wins the war for you, but he makes you nervous because he's so deadly and violent So you exile him and maybe even you use him in some way, and then you discard him. And though he's the one who saved your ass, he's not rewarded, he's punished for that. And the movement of Swagger himself and of several other snipers he saves from being used is to restore that warrior prince to his earned role in society. And if I've been any part of a movement to view these guys with respect and understand the sacrifices that they've made for us and the efforts they've put in for us, that's my legacy. That, that makes me very happy because that's what I was trying to do.
1: Well, of course, what you're describing is King David. David comes out of tending the sheep, kills Goliath, becomes a threat to the establishment, is forced to flee for his life, spends years as a mercenary general comes back to israel and saves it and becomes arguably its greatest king that is exactly the story
3: it's it's barest bones, stripped take it out of israel take it out of everything just that story it's a great story i think a story always will be worth telling and it's the story i am telling though without david's sling only with remington's rifle And as I say, you know, maybe it's that mythic or cultural undertone that people respond to. That sort of, if I may use a too fancy word here, subtextual meaning that people respond to and take pleasure in. And that's a note I'm aggressively trying to sound. And you get it and, you know, lots of people get it, but there are also some people who will never get it.
1: But that's okay. It's a big world. So let me ask you, and I can't remember now whether it's in Time to Hunt or when it is, but you have one novel in which they end up having to cross with a North Vietnamese battalion. And my sense is it's based on a real story.
3: It was Carlos Hathcock who ambushed and destroyed an entire North Vietnamese platoon. And I expanded it. See, this is what I mean about not wanting to use real stories. I mean, I suppose I could have talked to Carlos, but I wanted the freedom to create the story as I thought it needed to be on the scale it needed to be in the book. And so I wrote it inspired by him. Something like that did happen. Most of my gunfights are based on or suggested by real gunfights. Sometimes I recreate, as in the FBI book, I recreated all the gunfights of 1934 with immaculate detail. And sometimes, you know, just read, something will stick in my mind and I'll use it as a model years later. One of the questions we're getting at here is the distance of the writer from his material. And I don't consider myself a documentary fictionist. Because I understand, as I said earlier, that some things happen that probably wouldn't happen. Like a lot of people shoot at Bob, and he rarely gets hit. He does get hit, but he survives an awful lot of close shaves. And, you know, sooner or later, you've got to think the law of averages are against him. I try and be close enough to reality that it feels real to people in the reading of it. And then it's okay if later they say, well, he sure was lucky there. Or, boy, it was an awful big coincidence that that snowstorm showed up exactly. There are just little things you have to do to make the story, A, make sense, and B, make it a little bit better.
1: And, of course, you never know if the snowstorm hadn't showed up, something else might have. Exactly right. So you have this magic moment. I guess it was magic when one of your books, Point of Impact, ends up with Mark Wahlberg on the big screen. What was the experience like of having your novel turned into a movie?
3: Well, it was like seeing one of your own dreams from someone else's perspective. It was somewhat unsettling to see everything you imagined, but not as you imagined it. So you had contradictory mental impulses, Part of you is saying, oh, that's so cool. And another part of you is saying, no, no, that's not right. And in the end, it just leaves you sort of, that is as a viewing experience, it just leaves you sort of, well, what can I say, baffled. I mean, I think Antoine Foucault is a great director and he put together some top-rate action pieces in that movie. I mean, one of the problems I always have is that the movies have gotten so good at this stuff You really, really have to work hard to come up with something they haven't thought of yet. And I thought he did, on most of his things, I thought he did a very, very good job of the action. And one of the evidence of that is that movie has acquired a sort of cult status among shooters. I've talked to people who've seen it 20 times, and they just love the fact that the gun handling was professional, that the body reactions to the shots was professional, that the use of cover and the use of firing move all that was dramatized at a professional level, as opposed to the generic nonsense that most Hollywood generates. I will say, probably you'll agree with me on this, that I didn't like the ending. They didn't think my ending was strong enough, so they put on this ending where Bob Lee goes and shoots Ned Beatty, Senator, in the head. And that left me a little queasy. He wouldn't do that. To me, it's very hard for me to be bitter about it A, because I made a lot of money, and B, because they were very good to me, and C, because that was the only movie we were going to get. It's not like there was going to be another one. And so, in the end, you know, I'm okay with it. Ask me, do I love it? No. Do I approve of the ending? No. Do I like a lot of the stuff in it? Yes, I do. Do I like the changes they made in it? Moving it to Africa, making him a young guy instead of an old guy? That works for me. You know, that's okay. I understand that for their demographic, Vietnam is just a nail on a map. It's not a war, and it stirs no passions or memories as it would for you and I. So I walked away from that experience richer but wiser. And it was cool, but you have to accept that there's going to come a day when they stop returning your phone calls. And you can't be bitter about that, you know? You can't get angry about that. That's the system, okay?
1: They've moved on, you have to move on. Somebody said to me one time, the reason they pay you the money so you will be quiet and they will get to make the movie. That's <laughs> and you just exactly to the right. Do <laughs> you, you want to accept that deal or not? So I'm going to ask you one exactly. political question and only one political question. But given your affection for guns, I have a hunch you probably favor the Second Amendment. I kind of almost do. Well, in fact, targeted
3: is very much a uh, disquisition. I said it was explicitly political, more so than most of my work. But it's a disquisition on the use of force in society. And it's extremely anti-defund the police thrust of the story. You need a guy with a gun, okay? You may not like him. You may not like the guns, But if you get rid of the good guy with a gun, you are a fool.
1: I think that sort of summarizes it. Steve, I want to thank you. This has been a thrill for me to chat with you, having been a fan of your work for years. And I want to let our listeners know, we'll have a link to your books, including Basil's War, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I can tell you right now, I am looking forward to Targeted. And I am confident that it will keep me totally engrossed. I just want to thank you so much. This has been great fun for me. Well, thank you, and good luck picking up your new pistol.
3: Thank you, Newt. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you to my guest, Stephen Hunter. You can get a link to his recent book, Basil's War, a World War II spy thriller, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, this is Newt's World.
4: work.